This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Carlson, Carlson, världens bästa Carlson. Carlson, Carlson, hoj här kommer Carlson. Carlson, Carlson, ingen faktiskt, ingen annan Carlson vill jag så bra som mig. Carlson, Carlson, Carlson scores! Carlson, Carlson, världens bästa Carlson. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in to another episode of the Keeping Carlson Fans Hockey Podcast, the best hockey podcast in the world, hosted by two guys who have in their lives kept Eric Carlson in a keeper pool. I'm your host, Elon Dubrowski, and I'm so happy to have once again joining me after a long, long, long vacation, the fantasy hockey robot himself, Brian Com. Hello, Elon. Hello, everyone. The vacation was long, but if you define it by how many things I missed while I was away, it was, in fact, very short which is great for me trying to catch up on everything and uh, great for us. Some, some fantastic work, Elon, by you and Chris and Peter. While I was gone, I enjoyed listening to those episodes while in transit, but I'm enjoying even more being back with you here tonight. Okay, well, you've come back for a good night. We've got a really fun show ahead of us. We're going to break down some of the news, all the big, exciting news that has happened over the past month or so, which, spoiler, isn't much. Then we are going to be joined by managing editor of DauberHockey.com, Steve Laidlaw. We're going to talk all about projections. Steve's actually here in the chat room right now. For those of you joining us live, you could see him enjoying a quick snack before we start the show. But we'll get to him in a bit. But before we start, Brian, let's mention that we are presented by DauberHockey.com. We're going to be talking about Dauber a lot this episode. Do we even need to mention it? But yeah, we're presented by Dauber Hockey. It's a great fantasy hockey website. They've got the guide. We're going to be talking about the guide with Steve in just a little bit. It's obviously the resource you need to go to as you're preparing for your pool. So check it out, DauberHockey.com. One other thing, Brian, we have a big announcement coming up. I know how you love when I like to tease announcements at the beginning of the show that we'll say at the end. But for our perks, our patron perks, we're going to be announcing a change to that. So stick with us till the end of the show and you'll hear all of the updates. It's all good stuff. We're going to be adding a new exciting perk that I think you guys are going to like. But OK, let's get into the content here. Like I said, Brian, so much news while you were gone. And by that, I mean a couple things maybe worth mentioning that normally we would put at the end of a show on a regular episode. But obviously the biggest thing, the Oilers made a couple of big signings. They locked down McDavid and Dreisaitl both for eight years. McDavid, $100 million for eight years. So $12.5 million a year. Dreisaitl for $8.5 million a year. So that's obviously a lot of cap space locked up. But for two really good players, do you have a general sense of if this was a good move for the Oilers and if this makes any fantasy impact one way or another? Well, no fantasy impact that I can think of unless I, I, I guess the one thing that I can think of is, hey, if the Oilers are paying Leon Dreisaitl eight and a half million dollars then perhaps they want him to be more than a complimentary player to Connor mcdavid and not to sell what he does with Connor mcdavid short he's played very well with mcdavid he's played very well with hall 
but you sort of don't pay the second guy on a line. Like I, I'm trying to think of a comparable, like Kyle Poso with John Tavares. You don't pay them eight and a half million dollars. You pay the number one guy on the line eight and a half, eight and a half million dollars. So if they want to try and get full value for that money, the best way is probably to split the two apart. However, uh, that might not be what's best for the team. I think, uh, well, McDavid, you have to pay. There's, there's no question he's worth as much as he's allowed to be paid. Drysaddle seems high. I think you could justify it and say, like, yeah, it seems right. That'd be fine. But I, I think the one thing I can safely say is that it's not a bargain contract. And that's not to say it's totally overpriced if Drysaddle does play up to his potential and do everything the Oilers ask of him. It's just that before his playoff performance this past year, you probably could have had him well, under $7 million for sure. And then, of course, he tore it up and, and got a big bonus because of it. Uh, I saw a comparison being made to, to Vladimir Tarasenko, who's making $7.5 million a year. And maybe that would have been the right neighborhood for Dreisaitl to land if the Oilers were, I don't know, to get a, a little bit of a bargain for committing so much term to a player that it still is a leap of faith to know that he can be productive over these entire eight years. The good news is he's locked up in his prime. The unknown news is just exactly what his ceiling is over the course of a whole season. I'm hopeful that it's good. I know he's someone that Elon, you and I have gone back and forth about a lot over the last couple of years. He's good. He's not great. He's playing. He needs someone else to produce. He can actually drive play on his own. Like we've been all over the map with him. So I am excited to see where he settles. Uh, and I think if, in the best case scenario, the Oilers will be paying fair value for his services. Okay. Well, I mean, first of all, you said that he really earned the extra money during the playoffs. He did put up 77 points in 82 games in the regular season. So I think if he could be a 77-point player moving forward for those eight years, he'll definitely earn the money. Of course, the question is, did he get those because he's so great or because he was playing with McDavid? And it is kind of counterintuitive, but interesting what you say, where if he's really going to earn the money, that might actually hurt his fantasy value because that will mean he's away from Connor McDavid. And even though he's a great player, obviously the real money is when you play with McDavid. But who knows? We've been talking, while you've been gone, I've been talking with all of my guests about who's going to play with McDavid. There's so many names being thrown out there between Strom and Pugliarvi and Maroon and, and who knows who it's going to be Ryan Nugent Hopkins I've even seen thrown out there even though he's supposed to be a center but maybe not if Dreisaitl centers the second line so we'll have to see overall I agree that Dreisaitl's not as appealing away from McDavid but also I think he could probably be like a 70 plus point guy which would be worth the money but obviously we've got a long eight years to wait and see would it I don't know I don't even know like eight and a half is for me that, that's near franchise player money Although, like, you know, we're already looking at Austin Matthews' contract and seeing $11 million being the number that's thrown out there. So maybe in a few years with inflation, it, it looks more appropriate. But I don't think, like, Tarasenko's deal was only signed, what, was it two years ago? Uh, so I, I don't think getting an extra, and he and he's a point-per-game guy locked down, essentially. So you're betting, I think, more than the rate of inflation, like eight, an extra million over two years. I, I think that's that's more than just what you would expect uh, value to inflate, especially with the way the cap has been more or less stagnant. So you're betting a little more for a player who can hopefully be a point per game guy. And, and like you said, yeah, you're going to get decent value out of it uh, if he does pan out and is able to get 70 points at least as a floor. And of course, there's potential for more. But I just uh, just wonder if they could have taken that number down a little bit. But it seemed really hard with negotiating with McDavid at the same time and so much hype 
uh, coming off of that playoff run, feeling like this could be it. Like this, this is the time to start loading up for a potential dynastic playoff run. So, uh, yeah, he'll be a fun guy to watch. He already was before the contract was uh, was was put on him. Now it'll be even more fun. One thing to to worry about or consider, also, like look at what happened with Johnny Gaudreau last year and Sean Monahan. They had a really slow start after getting rewarded with big contracts, and there is a bit of a mental aspect to it. It's nothing that's I think been very well quantified before. We'll see if this is something that also affects. Dry subtle, but I also might be overplaying it because we're in the summer and it's all about speculation. Because we know we, we've already detailed why Gaudreau and Monahan had rough starts to uh, to their seasons last year with so many changes happening in Calgary uh, from the year prior to that. All right, Brian. So we had a whole plan that we were going to talk about all of this boring news for like 10 minutes before bringing Steve on, but it's already been 10 minutes. So I guess maybe at the end of the show, we can talk about the other huge things like Mark Strait going to the Habs and Markov going to the KHL and Travis Zajac being injured for four to six months. But we're going to bring Steve on to talk all about projections. Before we do that, let's just take a quick second to thank the sponsors of this week's episode. Our friends over at SeatGeek. Buying tickets to sports and concerts can be complicated, but there is a better, simpler way to buy with SeatGeek. SeatGeek is the smartest, easy easiest way to get tickets to live events and with seeking seamless mobile experience you can buy and sell tickets in just two taps if you want to see mcdavid and dry in a city near you why not go now all of the games have already been announced so you could go and buy your tickets to see your favorite team against the oilers so why not check it out at SeatGeek? and if you want to even get a better discount than the great value you'll be seeing on SeatGeek, our listeners they can get that brian tell them how yeah, they totally can with their first ever purchase on SeatGeek. All they need to do is enter the promo code KEEPING before they check out. It's in your profile or something. And uh, you'll get a $20 check mailed for you. That's American dollars. Uh, you'll get that check in the mail. Uh, I don't know. It's like seven to eight weeks after. You. It doesn't matter. You're going to get it. Promise. And if you don't, you can ask them for it. So, uh, yeah, another reason to use SeatGeek. I like, Elon, the word seamless has entered the conversation for SeatGeek. What kind of a- advertisement is this, Brian, where you're saying, yeah, you'll get it maybe, and if you don't contact us, you'll get, you'll get it. That's the promotion. All right. I'm very excited for our guest today, Steve Laidlaw. Like I said, he's the managing editor at Dabber Hockey, a big deal guy and a big part of the guide. Steve, thanks so much for joining us on Keeping Carlson. Brian, Elon, uh, it's, a, it's my pleasure to join you guys. Yeah, we had you on before at the end of last year. I remember we talked about your fantasy hockey MVPs, and that's, you know, fun sort of leading into the summer content. But now this is the serious stuff. You guys have released this ultimate guide over on DauberHockey.com. Every single player pretty much in the league. It's like the ultimate tool that people can use to prepare for their league. And I just want to pick your brain and understand how you put this together. And I have a lot of questions. But I guess maybe to start, can you just give a quick summary of the guide? Like what's in it? I guess if you could say it in like a couple of minutes, what makes it such an ultimate tool for fantasy hockey players? Uh, I, I believe we would call it the uh, the premier guide for uh, fantasy hockey. Basically, it's a, it's hundreds of pages. Uh, it's a PDF that you can download, and it's uh, it's hundreds of pages worth of uh, of projections. Dauber, you know, he basically. I mean, this is this is what he does now. He's uh, you don't see uh, too many of his articles on the site uh, anymore. Uh, it's just all about him. Putting in his uh, projections, um, he's got point projections for just about every player who's going to play in the league this year, even down to guys who are going to get 10 games, a uh, cup of coffee. He's got projections for those guys. You, you know, it, it goes uh, team by team. Uh, he's looking at guys who are going to be maybe multi-cat producers, 
guys who could be sleepers for you. Uh, he's got not only um, projections for this year, but he's also got uh, kind of three-year outlooks for for some of the guys, and then uh, you know, kind of what the upside downside is for for some of these players. He's he's looking at forecasting who's going to be on what line, um, who's going to be on you know, the top power play unit, second power play unit. And then uh, the rest of us writers, we uh, were all contributing uh, different articles. So, I mean, you guys had uh, Pete Harling on last week. Uh, he's doing stuff about, uh, I think, some of the rookies that are coming up next year. My annual column is 20 players whose stocks are going to fall uh, going into next year. Uh, other articles like that. Um, so we, we look at things like, uh, you know, guys who have... Uh, way too high shooting percentages, how, how that's going to fall. There's an article in there that's just all about the NHL's schedule and uh, ways that you can game that. So it, it's the ultimate guide. I mean, you know, if you read nothing but that, it, you would win a lot of leagues. Let's get into like exactly how it comes up with. So you, you've got a player on your plate and you need to come up with a projection for them. What's the first thing you look to when you are trying to project a player's production for the next year? Well, I think, I think the big thing is uh, acknowledging that uh, fantasy hockey doesn't really stop. So, uh, you know, you've, you've got a framework in your mind for what a player is, quantify it, I don't know, X level of talent. And then you start thinking about Y level of situation. So that could be uh, number of minutes he's going to get, power play minutes, uh, quality of teammates, that sort of thing. And uh, I'm very much a middle of the road type of projector. So I want to take if all of his percentages work out to his average level of talent, where's he going to be? And then you can scale him up or scale him down based on randomness factors, things like injuries, which to a certain extent uh, is part of that player's projection as well, uh, because health is a skill. But, uh, you know, other factors. So, you know, a player might get hurt and he might play through it. Um, and But he's still going to shoot a lower percentage because he's been, you know, he's coming off shoulder surgery, something like that. How deep does a team go into the playoffs? Uh, I, I would rather have guys who didn't necessarily go very deep in the playoffs because they're going to have a much longer summer to recuperate, more time in the weight room. They're going to be fresher, hungrier going into the next season. You know, other factors, just like shooting percentage spikes and, and declines, stuff like that, that you can't necessarily quantify for. So that's why I'm very much a middle of the road type projector. I know Dauber himself is, uh, he's a lot more bullish on uh, with some of his projections. Um, in, in years past, he's, he's gone well above uh, what other people have forecasted for uh, rookies. When he sees a guy that he, he's really into, even if it's a rookie, he'll, he'll be really bold with his, uh, with his projection. Um, so, yeah. Okay, cool. So I guess at this point, I'd be curious to get into some actual projections. One thing I wanted to mention, you said that Dauber tends to be a little bit bullish with his projections. I actually counted that he's got 61 players projected for over 60 points next season in the guide. And last year, there were only 42 players in the league who got over 61 points. I'm curious to know like how that's justified in terms of is there something special about next year that he sees happening offensively or is that just kind of a style to try to give higher projections because I guess at the end of the day it's not as if our hockey pools are let's pick guys who are going to get the exact number of points that we predict it's just we want to know who's going to be higher than another so but still I'd be curious to notice how he comes up with such high projections like so many guys getting over 60 points. Yeah, I, I can't uh, answer that with any uh, definitiveness. Um, I do know um, 
I'm making my own projections this year and uh, I'm very much trying to normalize for the number of players getting above a, a certain threshold. I've done, you know, I did all my defensive uh, projections already and I, I went back through and I wanted to make sure how many players got to 30 points, how many players got to 40, how many got above 50, that sort of thing. And uh, it, it lined up very well for me in, in terms of my projections. And maybe that's because I'm a very middle of the road uh, type of projector, as I said before. So I think that I would try to normalize it if with my own projections. But I know that Dauber, it, it, he tends to be a lot more aggressive. So I think that is just why. Now, I imagine injuries will probably, you know, stop some of these guys from being able to to reach uh, to to put up this much offense. So as many as might be projected to get there might not all get there anyway, and it might all come out even at the end of the day. But you mentioned earlier, use it. Health is a skill, and I'm just trying to 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 get a little further into that and how it plays into how you get your games played. Projections? Are you looking at Injury history, of course, factors into it. But are you also, by saying health is a skill, are you saying some players know how to protect themselves better game in, game out? Yeah, absolutely. I think that there's some players who, I mean, there's a whole aspect to like health and injury prevention that I think teams are still trying to delve into, you know, like all the the heart rate monitors, the sleep monitoring. And I mean, I think it's a rabbit hole that uh, is endless unto itself um, in terms of trying to get the most out of these investments. Because I mean, you guys were talking about uh, Drysidle before I hopped on, and that was a massive investment by the Edmonton Oilers. And you can bet darn right that they want to make sure that he's playing 82 games a year how they're going to be able to do that uh, I, I'm not quite certain but I know that uh, certain players take you know they play a, a more harder game a more feistier game um, certain body types lend themselves more to uh, being able to play physically than, than other body types. Some players play a lot bigger minutes. And when you're playing bigger minutes, you might be pushing yourself way harder beyond what your body can sustain. Because we know intuitively when you get hurt is generally when you're tired and you're trying to do something that maybe your body's not uh, capable of. And so certainly some players just seem to push themselves beyond uh, what they're capable of. And then others, uh, I don't know, maybe they're not, uh, they're not doing enough yoga in the off season to strengthen little weaknesses, um, things like that. So health is a skill, uh, but to what degree you can quantify uh, which players are going to get hurt. You, you really have to look at history. Yeah, so I'm curious, like, how would you recommend people trust or use the games played projections in the Dauber guide? Like, for example, I see for the Oilers, like, for some guys, it's obvious, right? Like, Malkin, it's smart not to assume he's going to play 82 games. You know, Chris, Chris Letang, we all know how much I love him and his injury history. But, like, I'm looking at, for example, the Oilers page here, and you've got Ryan Strom with 46 points in 73 games so 46 points i feel like barely fantasy relevant but then you know i think okay in 73 games but i don't really have a strong reason to expect ryan strom not to play some games i guess maybe dauber did but let's say if i think in my head i think ryan strom's probably going to play the full season i don't have a reason to expect him to get injured so if, if you know if i prorate that that works up to like a 52 point pace which i think is pretty different than a 46 point guy so in general would you recommend that people look at the guide and just go with the straight up point projections including games played or do you think it's worth normalizing for the players who you know aren't the obvious injury risks uh so uh, a few different uh, strategies 
to approach this depending on the type of league that you're in. So the first thing uh, with Strom, I believe he's only played uh, in and around an average of 70 games in the last two seasons. So he's not necessarily proven a guy who's going to play a full season for you. Uh, pretty close to, but not necessarily bang on the money. So I think that's where Dauber was going with that. But uh, in terms of using our games play projection, it would depend on the type of league that you're in. Now, if you're in a points-only league, where the only thing that matters is having the most points at the end of the season, you know, you're know, you not playing head-to-head, you're not playing weekly, uh, you're not playing rotisserie, then having guys who are going to get hurt is definitely a negative for you because they're going to put up less points. So Strom, you could normalize him to a 50-point season, but if he misses those 10 or so games, then he drops down to 46 points. But in a head-to-head or a rotisserie style where you know you could put that guy on the IR and then have someone come up and replace him during those times that he's out, then maybe you would normalize him to an 82-game season and then just assume you're getting a baseline-level replacement uh, waiver wire option to fill that stuff in, which is why I tend to be more bullish on guys like Malkin, guys like Latang, even though I know they're going to be hurt. If I can get them a couple rounds later than where their normalized talent would suggest they would, um, as long as they're healthy come fantasy playoffs, then what I'm really getting is I might be getting a first round talent at third round value because that player gets hurt more. Um, Obviously with Letang, uh, that came back to bite me hard last year because he didn't play the entire second half. Yeah, you're not the only one there. Yeah, I think it's really good advice. It really depends on the type of league you're in. Like not only if you're in a head to head, like you say, not only when the player's injured, you could pick someone else up and you might get. So for example, someone like Ryan Strom, if you see him as a 50 point guy and let's say your league is deep ish, but not super deep, there might be 40 point guys available in free agency. So really, it's just like, okay, for those 10 games, you'll get like one less uh, point every week or something, you know, something really small like that. So it does make sense in that case that it doesn't really matter if they're going to miss some time. But if, like you say, if you're just counting season-long points and you can't put players in IR, then it's a whole other story. All right, yeah. And so you learn uh, about a player's tendencies to, to play. I, I appreciate you detailing exactly how you, you figure out the game's play because it, it is a tough one and it is something to really manage in your draft when you're, you're looking at projections and some guys are further up or down. But anyway, you, you went through it all very well. One thing I wanted to ask you, and injuries might fall into this category, is... How much, uh, how much reflection do you do at the end of the season to see what went right and wrong with your projections from the year before? Uh, like, do you compile any stats or, or report on how you did or, or measure yourself against anyone else? And then the follow-up would be, I just want to know, are there any big lessons you've learned over the years that you've really been able to you know, look back, see where you went wrong, and then add a critical piece to your projections for the following years? Um, so if you could, uh, please come back to that lessons learned question. And so to the previous question, I would say that um, I definitely always try to look back at where I went wrong. I mean, a month into the season, I'm looking, oh God, what, what did I do wrong at the draft table? You know, last year, I think that I kind of underestimated goaltending swings last year. So I, I had Schneider in just about every league. And I mean, the, the devil's defense was so miserable that he just he just went into the tank and he got beat up a little bit for the first time in, in his career. So I don't think I was necessarily prepared for him to, to stop being a save percentage tent pole uh, than I was. And I probably drafted him higher 
than I necessarily should have. So uh, because these are Dauber's projections and, and not my own, I'm not necessarily as uh, as attached to uh, to taking on the task of uh, literally reviewing and comparing to other guides and, and see who did the best with their projections. I think that that would be a uh, a fantastic summer project, but uh, it's not something that I've ever gone through the process of doing. Now, maybe uh, this year with me doing my own uh, projections, maybe I will take the task of reviewing them at the end of next season, because certainly with my 20 stock drops, I always review uh, how I did. So two years ago, 13 out of my 20 stock drop projections uh, actually did decline in a significant way. Uh, the, this past year, uh, 18 out of my 20. So I, I did much better. So I think that uh, there was a lot of lessons that I learned um, in terms of what what numbers that I look at and what numbers that I don't in terms of determining those stock yeah, drops. So share some of those lessons with, with so much success in, in figuring out what makes a player about to fall in production, what are what are those lessons you learned from year to year that 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 helped you get to that level of accuracy? Well, yeah, I'd be curious to know who. Like, maybe we could use an example of a player you're expecting their stock to drop this year, and you could let us know how you came up with that. So, one of the biggest lessons that I learned was that shot quality does exist. So, there are definitely certain players who can drive shooting percentages higher. So, I mean, looking at a guy like uh, Mikhail Granlund this year, who drove uh, his teammate's shooting percentages uh, through the roof this season, his own shooting percentage was uh, was well above. Of, uh, what he'd ever done uh, in years past. And so the big question with him is, has he finally broken out as a real star? Or is he a guy who just uh, who just experienced a shooting percentage bump? So uh, it's it's more art than science, I would say. But uh, appreciating the fact that there are some players who can drive shooting percentages higher, uh, certainly the Sidney Crosby's of Getting Malkin, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, we know those guys drive shooting percentages way high. So Granlin's one guy who I do have projected for uh, less points than last season because of these shooting percentages. But I do think that he is a guy who's capable of driving shooting percentages higher. It's just a matter that he doesn't shoot that much and he's never traditionally shot that well of a percentage. I think he's been an 8.2% career shooter. So he's not going to get a ton of goals. So the question is, how well is he going to be able to drive shooting percentages in order to get the 50, 55 assists that he might need in order to be a 70 point guy again. Yeah. Well, so Granlin had 69 points last year. And I guess this is like you said, Dauber came up with the projections, but then different people wrote different articles because I'm seeing Granlin's actually projected for 70 points next year. I wanted to ask you about him. I'm curious to know like why Dauber thinks he's going to be able to keep that up considering before he'd never been above a 44 point guy. But at the same time, we've all been seeing Granlin as a guy that we were expecting to break out for many years. So I guess you're saying that maybe you don't agree with that projection of 70 for Granlin next year, keeping it up. Yeah, I think that uh, I think 70 is a little bit uh, too bullish for Granlin, but it, it's certainly possible. I know that uh, Dauber is very high on Bruce Boudreaux as a coach, and you see the addition of uh, Boudreaux to the Wild and how how much better that team was last season. And you see Granlund uh, finally succeed, you know, as a as the fantasy asset we thought he could be for years. Um, you see him move to the wing, uh, where he seems to be uh, much more comfortable as a producer. So uh, 
I'm not necessarily down on the idea of him being a 70 point guy. I just know that everything's going to have to go right again for that to happen. And, and like I said, I'm a middle of the road type of projector. So I have him in the 60 point range. Um, but if he can, you know, if he shoots more than I think that he might, or if he, he continues to shoot a higher percentage, then certainly I could see it driving up to 70. I just think that that's on the fringes of, of what we can expect from him. Yeah, and it's interesting, right? Because going into last season, if anyone would have said, I see Granlin as a pretty solid bet for 60, people would have been like, whoa, what a crazy projection. He's never been even a 50-point guy. Now we have people putting him at 70. I agree with you. I, I, the funny thing is Brian's even more conservative than me, so maybe Brian's got him at like 55, but I would say around 60 or, or 65 for Granlin seems fair. And then, yeah, also his line mates, it's not as if he's playing with superstars. You know, we've got like Niederreiter and... I guess maybe Parisi or, or Stahl or Zucker, or it's hard to know exactly who's going to play with who. Going to next year, I know Joel Erickson Eck has a bit of hype. I don't know if he's going to end up playing with Granlin. Obviously, Miko Koivu will be there. But yeah, I, I agree with you. I guess Niederreiter's another guy, actually, who I saw was very high on the Dauber projections. He had him for 60 when he had 57 last year, but then only 43 before. So it seems like Dauber, like you said, I guess he likes Bruce Boudreaux, so he's high on Minnesota repeating some of these great numbers. I actually wanted to also ask you about the sleeper projections in the guide it actually has besides some players a projection and then beside it a specific like sleeper projection so for example Andre Kopitar he's like projected for 66 points but in the sleeper column they have him for 80 I'd be curious to know how it was come up with like which players get this second sleeper projection and then as people who are trying to decide who to draft in their pools like how do you use this information do I think of Kopitar as a 66 point guy do I think of him as an 80 point guy do I go somewhere in the middle so the sleeper projection is for guys who um, you could, you could almost call it uh, an uncertainty factor. So you take a guy like uh, Max Pacioretty, and you're getting 275 or more shots on goal. You're getting 30 goals, and you're getting 60 points, and you know you're getting that every single year, almost irrespective of anything else that happens. But you look at Kopitar, and certainly he has the talent of a point-per-game player, and he's displayed that in the past. Even in years where he started really slowly, which I think he started really slowly the past three years, um, so it's, beca- it's becoming a trend. But a huge coaching change in LA, and it's the, the sounds coming out of, out of LA are that they're going to start uh, trying to play more, more of an up-tempo type game, um, maybe focusing a little bit more on shot quality versus dominating those possession metrics. Um, after years of basically playing that, uh, that very uh, puck control game uh, under Daryl Sutter. So getting a healthy Tyler Toffoli back, maybe getting something out of uh, Mike Camilleri, a nice little deal there. You can see why it very much so, you know, there'd be concern about Kopitar continuing to kind of decline, but also there's there's the potential for him to jump right back up if there's a, a philosophy change in L.A. Yeah, and I hear that. And we've actually, you know, we, we've had similar conversations on the show, too. One thing that just sticks out, and I don't even know if this is a question, but I, I remember at the start of last year when St. Louis was like, okay, this defense first, you know, we thought we had the best lineup possible to work this system that we've got that works so well and not preventing any goals, but we just couldn't score any. And so remember they brought in Mike Yao and Ken Hitchcock was going to slowly sunset. He was still going to stay with the team through the year, but they were changing the system. And uh, sure enough, it didn't work out. Mike Yao took over completely uh, by the end of the season. And what did they end up doing? They ended up going back to what worked for them previously to some extent. So they tried 
to have that philosophical change in how they work their system. It was a gong show, and then they ended up going back to it. So I, I wonder if LA can pull off that kind of change. It's going to be something that uh, you know seems like some. Uh, I want to count on it happening through the year, but I could see it if there's a shaky start, especially with Jonathan Quick and Net, who you know could end up being somewhat exposed by an offense first situation, uh, then how quickly the Kings snap back and then, you know, that crushes any extra offensive potential that we could have hoped for from guys like Toffoli and Kopitar. Uh, that's going to be a, a, a situation potentially in flux. I'm not totally sold that they're going to be able to handle this system and philosophy change through the whole year. Yeah, I guess, you know, a lot of people have been talking about this LA, like, offense first for next year. I don't know if enough people are talking about how that might hurt Jonathan Quick's value. So maybe you should draft him with some caution if you think that LA is going to be opening things up to try to raise the values of, like you said, like Kopitar and Toffoli and Jeff Carter, even though Jeff Carter was fine last year, obviously. Okay, Steve, I have a crazy idea for you that maybe you could bring back to Dover for next year's guide. I like the sleeper column. I like the idea of having sort of a projection, but then a high end if everything goes right. What about for some players to have a snoozer column for like, you know, this guy has extra potential for things to go especially wrong. So maybe like Grandland has that 70 point projection, but maybe in the snoozer column, or I don't know what you would call it. We could talk about the branding. You know, maybe you put him as like 60 for if things don't go right, but then 70 is the actual projection. What do you think about that? Like oh, I think that's a brilliant idea. I believe we've done something like this uh, before in the past. I, I, I'm not positive on that. J- just in general, I think that um, that gets kind of at a draft philosophy notion that uh, that I have. So uh, very much, I'm you know I'm conservative. I'm middle of the road with with my projections, but I also I also kind of I like to keep in mind the the, the great potential for uh, value swings in terms of player value and, and what they might uh, potentially do. And um, so, so kind of how I do that is uh, I, I really like to do tiered rankings. And so that just involves uh, putting similarly ranked players into a similar tier. And then maybe um, within that tier, I would take, you know, I, I would kind of build my own ranking within that tier based on uh, how big of a swing or how much potential I think there is. Um, and then it, just basically, depending on where I am in the draft, uh, how much risk I'm willing to take uh, with any pick. So the later you go in the draft, the more risk-taking I'm willing to be because I would have drafted you know, less, uh, less variant players earlier in the draft. So you know, I, I want to be drafting guys who, who aren't going to have that huge variance earlier. And then when I have players that I feel uh, less confident about, then I'll make those swings later in the draft. Speaking of all these swings, who are some of those guys out there this year that you're willing to take some of your bigger swings on? The biggest swing that I'm probably going to take this year is on uh, Scott Darling. I think that he's going to be a top 10 goalie this year. Um, I've been putting it out on all of my lists. And uh, yeah, I'm going to be drafting him uh, excessively high. And and on the flip side of that, in goal, uh, one goalie uh, I probably won't be drafting anywhere is Braden Holtby. I think that uh, the Capitals, they're a lot thinner than they have been in years past. And just in general, goalies don't tend to stay elite in terms of fantasy production for very long. You don't get more than three years as a top five fantasy goaltender. It just doesn't happen. I think the last guy to pull it off was Henrik Lundqvist, and we've started to see him fall off. 
you know, the Capitals, they, uh, they lost. Uh, Mitch Korn, the famous goaltending coach, uh, they've still got a very good system there. Holtby's still a very good goalie, but uh, people are going to be drafting Holtby in the first round, and I'm not going to be one of them. Yeah, I think that's fair. I actually think I've come to realize that I don't really want to draft goalies that high regardless. I don't want to draft any goalie in the first round just because I feel like there's so much variance. But I got to say, Scott Darling as a top 10 goalie, I don't know, I've heard, I've read it. I think we talked about it on the podcast. I, I'd be curious, though, who does he bump? He's not bumping Holtby, right? Like if you had, if you could have either one without having to worry about what value in the draft, you're still taking Holtby ahead of Darling, right? Yeah, no, I, I would take Holtby ahead of Darling, but just, uh, I mean, the way that drafts go, I would just way rather have the value of Darling. And I mean, even then, I'm, I'm not positive that Darling's not going to outperform Holtby this year. Oh man. Wow. Can I just, would it be that's credit? That's a big swing. That's a very big swing. That's the perfect you, answer. Elon, you've question. been you've been going on about how you think the Darling is so underrated that he's becoming overrated. But this isn't even. I don't know. Does, does this fall into that category, Elon? What Steve is saying. I mean, obviously, this is like everyone's going to have their person, and like Steve could totally be right, right? Like Scott Darling, if he puts up the same numbers he put up last year in terms of save percentage as it last year on Chicago, and if Carolina is a better team, you know, Aho breaks out and Skinner continues to break out. Like I, I see where you're coming from. Like there's potential upside there for sure. Question in the chat room: Alex is asking. Or he's saying he'd consider Darling over Crawford. Oh, I don't know. I guess I could just ask you every goalie, like Darling versus this person, now that you've said he's a top 10 guy. Who would you want between those two, Steve? Well, actually, Elon, I'm going to modify the question for Steve. Instead of just saying those two, uh, maybe maybe this is... I, I, Steve, I don't know if you have like a list of goalies in front of you, but even considering value, how many goalies would you prefer ahead of Scott Darling. And like, I get that you would rather take Scott Darling in like round five than Braden Holt be in round one. And that's the sort of question I'm getting at. How many goalies uh, in, in terms of value rank higher than where you think you can get Darling this year? So I think on my last list, I had seven goalies ahead of Darling. But I haven't, uh, I don't believe I've done my, uh, my August rankings as of yet. So yeah, he's right in around that 10 spot for me right now. Okay. Yeah. It's going to be, uh, it's going to be interesting because we think Elon, you and I both are of the mind that Scott Darling, he's like the, the sleeper of the year. And there's just been so much talk about it that he won't even be available for value in a lot of drafts. Cause everybody is going to be eager and be like, yeah, I'm the guy who knows about Scott Darling. So I'm going to, I'm going to jump on him. Like I, there's always the players that everybody wants to try and be smart about it and draft two or three rounds even earlier than their sleeper value would suggest. And I, I feel like he is in danger of being grabbed a little too early, but Hey, if you've got faith in Carolina goaltending all of a sudden, then by all means, I'm not trying to throw shade. Well, no, anything. I mean like Carolina goaltending has always been bad because they've had bad goalies, right? I know you love Eddie Lack so <laughs> no, much. They you, had want Eddie blame, Lack. you want to blame the Carolina <laughs> system for Eddie Lack playing like he did and not blame Eddie Lack. But okay, so that was your question about a big swing. I guess I'd love to get into some players that I think looked like big swings in the guide and then get your take, Steve, on like why you think Dauber went that way. When, when I was preparing for this interview, I didn't realize actually that I thought it was like you guys all work as a team to come up with these projections. But now you've been saying that it's more like Dauber's projections and you have your own separate projections. But I'd still love to just throw some of these at you and get your take. Like one guy that jumped out at me right away when I was looking at the guide, or actually the guide comes with this draft list separately, an Excel sheet. So I just sorted by projected points and just went down the list to see who the top, whatever, 50, 100 points are going to be, according to Dauber. I saw Braden Shen 
up at 70 points when last year he had 55, the year before he had 59, which was his career year. So Shen in Philly seemed like a guy who had a 60 point ceiling, you know, like on that top power play, doing well, plays like on the second line. But I guess I'm guessing Dauber sees him on St. Louis, a whole new situation, but 70 points. I'd I'd love to just know the thinking behind putting him that high. Yeah, I don't get it because uh, Shen's not a very good five on five player. And he was in the absolute perfect situation in Philly. Now, St. Louis has also been one of those very consistent teams in terms of power play performance. Now, was that Kevin Shattenkirk or is that the factor of uh, Vladimir Tarasenko? So, I mean, obviously, the belief is St. Louis's centers have sucked and they've sucked for a long time. And Shen's going to be the guy who clicks with uh, Vlad Tarasenko. But I'm not even convinced that Shen is a center for them, and I'm not even convinced that he's on their top power play unit. So uh, to go as high as 70, like there's there's no way I'd be able to make that projection. Now, I could see him putting up exactly the same season as he had last year, or maybe the year before being in that 50 to 60 point range. But to jump to 70, I mean, I, I just don't see how you get there beyond the notion that he's going to be really good next to Tarasenko. But I mean, that's a lot of heavy lifting for Tarasenko. And he's done some in the past uh, with Yori Laterra. But I mean, Yori Laterra didn't suddenly become a valuable fantasy asset. Yeah. And it's not like Shen has been without elite line mates while getting points in, in the 50s and doing what he's done at even strength, which, yeah, has never been totally impressive. He's had several chances and turns with. Zero and Voracek before uh, the la- even the last year or two where they've had some difficulties scoring. So I'm, I'm with you. That sounds very generous. I think, uh, you know, it's always you think of the player wearing their new jersey and it seems like all bright and shiny and, hey, possible anything can happen. But this to me sounds like a return back to Braden Shen as LA King's number one prospect who's, who was just you know, so ready to pop in and produce and then ended up getting traded and was going to do the same thing in Philly. And I I think we've seen about as much as he's capable of doing. Uh, But of course, these these projections are fun talking points, if nothing else. Uh, How about uh, there's a player who we tracked last year, JT Miller in New York. And he was someone who I, I, I turned on eventually in in a good way like at first I was like ah he's just like any of the other top nine or even like top 10 forwards with the Rangers they're all sort of sharing production from the same pod it's a scoring by committee the system's working well Uh, but then I started to think that there was a little something about him that stands out and today I actually saw a Rangers fan taking polls on Twitter uh, about who would they prefer say JT Miller or Ryan Nugent Hopkins, and the results from whoever was voting was overwhelmingly JT Miller, which I suppose makes sense, even though, I don't know, I still I still hold a candle for Nugent Hopkins, to be honest. And then uh, JT Miller versus Matthew Shane, and Matthew Shane was decidedly ahead in that one. But anyway, uh, going back to the projection, he had 56 points last year, which was an improvement uh, over his half point per game pace the year before. The guide has him at 60 this year, which is tied for first on the Rangers, is he really going to be one of their top scorers, like one of their top two or even three scores this year? So I certainly don't have him in that range, but um, 
I could get behind it. I mean, that uh, that line with, with Miller and Hayes and Grabner was certainly able to drive shooting percentages uh, much higher than, than you would expect. And, and a lot of that had to do with their counterattacking style. I, I certainly wouldn't expect Grabner to continue to shoot the, the obscenely high percentage that he did last year. Um, but if you wanted to tell me that Miller was the best player on that line and that he was the reason that it was so successful. And then you coupled that with Miller becoming perhaps the net front presence on uh, an improved top power play unit now that they have Kevin Shattenkirk, then I could see some logic to it. But uh, the Rangers have never had a good power play. They even added Keith Yandel, a phenomenal uh, power play quarterback. Um, It did nothing production. Um, so I don't know that Shattenkirk's going to drastically improve their power play. I don't know that they're going to get away um, from the by committee approach that they have in terms of their power play. So I don't know that Miller's going to get the, the minutes or the opportunity to take advantage of that. And, and then he would also have to uh, push aside a guy like Chris Kreider, who is one of the elite net front presences. So that leap to 60, it seems like a lot. Yeah, and just before, uh, I know Elon's got something to say, uh, but as for Yandel coming in, I still don't think that he got the shake he should have gotten. The same way when they brought in Dan Boyle to do something on the power play, he was like run out of town before he even arrived. And yeah, I I think he was probably capable of less than Yandel was going to offer, but I'm not ready to pin that on Yandel. Not necessarily that that's what you were doing. Brian, I think it's funny also, like, if you recall, we had a nice argument in the one of the last shows we did before you went on your vacation where you said you thought Shattenkirk will be exactly the same as he was uh, in St. Louis, like on the Rangers. And I said, I think he's going to go down a little bit because like Steve is saying, so I've got a backer now. Steve agrees that the Rangers maybe don't have as strong as of a power play as the St. Louis Blues do. And he's going from playing with Tarasenko to playing with maybe the best player on the team, JT Miller, <laughs> according to the Dauber projections. But, you know, or like Zibanejad and Kreider and, and you know, Zuccarello. All right, so another guy on the list, I guess right now we're asking about some players that we thought were a bit high. Then, Steve, I'll ask you about a couple of players who I thought were lower than I would have expected. You know, got to find, not saying I disagree with any of these, but it's always got to find those outliers that I think would be interesting to talk about. So I saw Elias Lindholm projected for 55 points, and he was one of those guys that also had the sleeper category filled in with 65 points. So potentially a big season for Elias Lindholm on Carolina, along with Scott Darling, by the way. Uh, So last year, Elias Lindholm had 45 points in 72 games, and that was his career high. So this would be a huge jump for him to get up to 55 points. I'd be curious to know what's the reason why we think Elias Lindholm is finally a really strong fantasy option when pretty much the whole time we've been doing Keeping Carlson, he's been one of those guys that's been at the top of my free agent list and added and dropped like the most in a lot of my leagues. Uh, so a couple of things uh, with Lindholm. He had a very strong second half last year, um, and, and that was coupled with uh, with being able to team up with Sebastian Ajo, so, who I think everyone projects to, to take a leap forward next year. So certainly uh, there's some potential uh, for, for improvement for Lindholm, uh, just in terms of consistency. If he, if he produces uh, the way he did in the second half of last season, uh, then 55 points will, will be no difficulty for him at all, and especially if he continues to flash that chemistry with uh, with Aho. And then um, we talked about Darling earlier, but we, we didn't talk about the impact that having a, a dependable goaltender can have on the offensive upside uh, of a team. And when your goaltenders are as dog awful as the Hurricanes have been for years, Brian, uh, are you going to take this? He's talking about your favorite goalie. 
Yeah, I am going to, to they were, they were okay. terrible. Okay, sorry I, for interrupting. But but I, I don't know, I think the whole thing, uh, Carolina, I'm still suspect. Like, I, I hear what you're saying, Steve, about having a better goalie will enable the offense to to take a few more risks. And yeah, for sure, they couldn't do anything. Like the second uh, the puck turned going their way, it could have been a goal 98% of the time, really, with the way that Cam Ward and Eddie Lack were playing. But at the same time, I feel like there were like bigger problems that that caused that situation. And I still feel like if they have a good goalie, they still like I they want to be defensive minded. They just couldn't be defensive minded or maybe they shouldn't have been with how weak their their last line of defense in net was. Yeah, I, I mean, the biggest factor in, in their offense uh, improving is going to be improvements from their players, and it certainly seems like they've uh, they've done a lot to bolster their team depth, and that and that's going to help them out a lot. Um, they've got a ton of young talent on that team, so if they all improve together, then that's going to help guys like Lindholm uh, put up a, a higher point total uh, because you, we know that he's not going to be playing with with Aho a hundred percent of his shifts and a hundred percent of the power play time and stuff like that. Uh, injuries are going to happen. There's going to be other factors and, and the ability to have players beyond uh, just just your regular line mates who you can produce points with uh, is a very big factor. And, you know, whether or not the goaltending does improve and whether or not that does enable the team to play more offensively, we know that this is a team that's uh, very much been driven to play a, a strong puck possession game. So whenever the shooting percentages, um, if they're ever going to normalize for, for the Hurricanes, um, that would be where uh, Lindholm achieves his his sleeper value. All right, a couple guys who have already done what we hope Lindholm will do this year, and and we actually have hoped Lindholm would do for the last two years. Uh, I'm just going to bring it back to Cam Atkinson and Victor Arvidsson. I mean, Cam Atkinson took took his sweet time to break out and finally did it. And I know how high Dauber is on him and thinking that this is what he's going to do for the rest of his prime years. No problem, like money in the bank. And then you have Victor Arvidsson, who got essentially his first opportunity and cashed in immediately with a fantastic breakout season. Between the two, Cam Atkinson and Victor Arvidsson, do you have a preference or reason to believe that one of them is going to outperform the other, or are they in the same neighborhood? Well, I see in the Dauber guide, I'll just bring it back to that quickly. Like, Dauber's got them both at the same. So I guess that's why you're asking. 65 for Atkinson, 65 for Arvidsson. Both improvements over their already nice breakouts from last year. So I am curious to know this answer as well. So between the two, uh, I'm a huge Arvidsson fanboy. So for uh, non-fantasy related reasons, I would probably prefer Victor Arvidsson. I just, uh, I love the, the bulldog way that he that he plays the game. I mean, we, we, we talked ad nauseum about uh, Arvidsson uh, last time I was on. He was one of my, my absolute favorites from this past season. And he, he's been one of my absolute favorites for, for a couple of years now. You know, I, I've had him in a keeper league for uh, several years and, and Seeing him break out in this fashion uh, was 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 very exciting for me. My actual projections for both of these players are uh, lower coming into the season. I have them; they're both on my stock drop list uh, because I do think that to a certain extent they achieved just about uh, towards the high end uh, of what they're capable of. Now, certainly Atkinson was basically a point per game guy for the first half of last season, and that was all due to. Columbus's insane, 
insane power play that went to dead last in the league from January on. Now, there was lots of articles penned about uh, how perfect the Blue Jackets power play was arranged. They had uh, the perfect pieces in all the right spots. So why did they fall completely off the face of the earth then if if they were so perfect? And uh, I I tend to think that one of the biggest drivers of uh, power play success is having guys who could drive shooting percentages higher. Because at the end of the day, you end up with guys, you know, the teams figure out what you're trying to do on your power play and they look to stop it. So if you don't have multiple options on your power play, who can get off uh, really good scoring chances um, and, and score at a higher rate. For instance, the Washington Capitals, I mean, Ovechkin just, he's just able to get off shots and, and score at a higher rate than other guys. You know, similar Steven Stamkos in Tampa Bay. You look at the Philly power play, and I would argue that the Flyers power play is actually the perfect version of a power play because they have elite shooters at so many different spots including probably the best net front man in the game in Wayne Simmons. So uh, the Blue Jackets don't have that. And uh, Atkinson was about, you know, he scored about 25 points in 40 games in the second half. And that's about the level of talent a player I see him as. There's also the problem of if they're going to have an elite shooter on their power play, wouldn't that be Artemi Panarin? And wouldn't Artemi Panarin be stealing his spot because I don't see Atkinson filling the Gagne uh, bumper role because I, I'm not sure he's that kind of player. But those are the two spots that Atkinson could successfully fill on that power play. So if Atkinson's suddenly a second power play unit guy, uh, then his you know his odds of scoring 60 points again uh, go extremely down. So this is not a player that I'm going to be uh, chasing in drafts um, for a higher than 52 point value. Yeah, that seems fair. Actually, I'm really interested by what you said about how Atkinson had a weaker second half than his first half. Do you put a lot of stock into that when coming up with your projections? Like, do you think that what they did more recently is more valuable in projecting for next year than what they did over the whole season? I think that um, the way that his second half fell more in line with what he's done throughout his career, oh, I think I that is a very accurate representation. Uh, but certainly, I, I do look at first half and second half performance. Uh, so one thing that you know we could discuss is uh, uh, where, where do you place Nikita Kucherov after the insane final quarter of the season that he had, when basically that team had him and Hedman, and they were just skating all the minutes and running rampant on everyone during their desperate chase for the playoffs. I mean, he's not going to get those kind of minutes, you know, over the course of 82 games next season. So you could almost see Kucherov declining a little bit, even though he had such an explosive second half, uh, just because he got more minutes than he could handle. Wow, that's actually a big swing in the other direction if you think it's potentially going to be a year where Kucherov doesn't meet the value that a lot of people are projecting. I know a lot of people see him as potentially a top five guy in scoring next year. Uh, A couple of other guys who I would have expected Dauber to project high. So let's go to the other side now. Guys who I think are projected lower than I expected. I got to start with David Pasternak, who last year obviously had that huge breakout, 70 points in 75 games. I see Dauber has him way down at 62 points for next year. Though, of course, then I looked, you know, one column over, and realize that that's only in 68 games. So maybe when you normalize, it's close. But I'd be really curious to know, like, why do we have Pasternak 
with so few games. And are you as concerned about him as Dobrik? Because a 62-point guy, you're, no way you're getting Pasternak at 62 points. So basically, if you agree that Pasternak is a 62-point guy next year, basically you're saying, I'm not drafting Pasternak. Yeah, I, I'm not exactly sure where the 68-game uh, game. Uh, projection comes for. We always look at uh, at past uh, performance as a predictor of, of future performance uh, in terms of games played. And, and he certainly missed some time last year uh, with injury, and his shooting percentage dropped uh, significantly after after I think what was uh, wrist surgery. So I, I think that would be reason for a bit of a decline. Uh, and it, me personally, I have him in the in the high sixty point range, just because I think there will be a little bit more experimentation with Pasternak away from Bergeron and Marchand and I'm curious to see how he does um, I think he's an elite goal scorer I think he's the kind of guy that you could build a, an elite power play around because he has that ability to uh, to shoot uh, elite one-timers from from the right-hand side which is a, a very good fit for what uh, what other caliber of players the uh, the Bruins seem to have on their team all right I'm gonna I'm gonna come back in with his next one uh, who's also seems low in the guide, and not to give too much away, but but William Nylander is slated to be far below a point per game player <laughs> this year, as some other sources are suggesting. Uh, the guide has him actually lower than last year's pace, down to 54 points. Uh, that's given that he misses 10 or 11 games due to injury. Uh, he's way behind uh, Mitch Marner. And Austin Matthews, can you foresee a situation like how how would it be possible that he gets left so far behind the other two when he was pretty much right up there with them for a lot of last season? So again, this is a bit of a, a guessing game as to where where Dauber went with his game played projection, but um, he's a Leaf fan, and I, I think that uh, any Leaf fan would admit that Nylander's probably. Um, the riskiest of uh, of the their trio of good young players, and uh, if, if you recall back to his his concussion a couple of years ago at the at the World Junior Championships, I wonder if that's not uh, lingering in in the back of the mind here. Um, he's the type of guy who plays who plays the sort of style that I wouldn't necessarily say projects well in, in terms of being able to stay healthy. You know, he's not. You know he's not a stocky short guy. He's 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 more of a sleeker, faster type of guy. And uh, I wonder if if that style of play won't lend itself uh, to getting hurt more often. Ah, concerning. But okay, if though all three of them are healthy for let's say the whole season, they all play the same number of games. What do you think their ranking will be between Matthews, Marner, and Nylander? Oh, that's a very good question. Um, the, the first thing is I think that uh, the Matthews projection is probably too low. I think he could easily score 80 next year, um, especially if Nylander plays the full season. I think all of these guys could be scoring in the 70-point in the range, uh, but Matthews would, would absolutely be my number one. There's actually one other set. Before we let you go, Steve, I've got another set of teammates that I'm having a really hard time with figuring out. And this, this is a personal issue for me. I don't know how much we've talked about it on the show, but in Buffalo, like I, I did a, a slow draft, I, I guess... It wasn't really a mock draft because it's going to be counted like the teams are set. But I really had trouble figuring out where to value 
Ryan O'Reilly and Kyle Lucposo specifically. And I, I'm ready to throw Evander Kane into that mix too. Like we know Jack Eichel seems to be ready to run away with the Buffalo Sabres team scoring lead. But as for how the other three do, I'm sort of at a loss at knowing exactly what to expect, especially there is some injury history there with each of them. But that aside, and I know that's hard to say after we've already talked to you about like how you account for a game slate lost and how you didn't necessarily advise against trying to normalize for an 82 game pace when you're drafting. But let's just looking at these three guys, if they all play relatively equal amounts of time between Ryan O'Reilly, Kyle Lucposo and Evander Kane. How do you see those three guys shaking out in terms of where they rank amongst Buffalo Sabres forwards? Uh, in terms of my rank for them, um, it, it would be very clearly O'Reilly 1, uh, Ocposo 2, and, and Evander Kane 3. And a lot of that has to do just strictly with uh, with reliability in terms of injuries. We know that Evander Kane's going to get hurt every year. Um, we also know that Evander Kane's going to pile up ludicrous shot totals, none of which are ever going to find the back of the net. And we also know that Evander Kane is not going to be a guy who they're going to use on their top power play unit, which is one of the best in the league and was uh, whether or not Jack Eichel was on the ice. They had one of the best power plays in the league while Eichel missed the first 20 games. Um, And then when he got back, it got even better. So certainly I think that O'Reilly is going to be in and around that 60 point range. Um, I would put Ocposo close to that range as well. Although um, again, like his, his concussion situation is, uh, no, no, no. You, you're always scared with with players uh, who have uh, concussions. And then Evander Kane's just like, uh, he's just a write-off for me. I don't know. Yeah, he's, yeah, not, he's not a player I'm interested in. Yeah, that's totally fair. I, I, I'm throwing him in there because of the hype I've seen around him. Like, this is going to be a big season. If he can stay healthy, he's finally going to click. But we've seen that for so many years. And we also know we can't rely on him to stay healthy. So you said Ryan O'Reilly right around the 60-point mark. Kyle Poso, I'd really like to think as somebody who can reach 70 in an ideal situation, but I wonder if I'm just overrating him. What do you think his ceiling is? I think you're overrating him. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he didn't he hit around 70 when he was playing with Tavares? Yeah, and he did very well for a stretch without Tavares too, where you know, I, the, everybody started to believe that Kyle Poso is the maker of his own fortune to some extent. But it is a different situation in Buffalo where everyone still seems to be feeling things out. There's a new coach. That's why I'm having so much trouble with so many guys on their roster. Yeah, with Ocposo is, I mean, he was he was almost a 70-point guy uh, riding shotgun with Tavares. And that was when he was in his prime. He's now in his post-prime. So uh, I would put less upside on him. Now, if I knew that he was going to be uh, with Jack Eichel all year, then I'd feel a lot more confident. But we know fairly well that he's going to be with O'Reilly all year, going up against uh, opponents' top lines uh, in more of a defensive role. And that's 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 a battle that they can win. Um, but it's not a battle that's going to lead to Akposo, you know, scoring 50-plus points at even strength on top of the 20 or so that he's going to get playing on that elite power play. If he was with Eichel uh, for for the full year, then, then maybe I could see that because, I mean, Eichel is going to be a top 10 rotisserie guy this year. Like, it's lock that in stone. He was um, when he was healthy last year, and it's going to happen again this year. I mean, we're talking 300 plus shots, 75 plus points, crazy type production uh, out of this guy in a full healthy season. Yeah, I'd say, Brian, like, 
Aposo, by the way, is only projected to get 51 points according to uh, the Dabra projections, but that's again in 68 games, assuming because of that concussion issue. Ryan asked in the chat here, is Aposo all good? No, what was his diagnosis? Apparently, because yeah, it was kind of mysterious at the end of the season. He was in the hospital, intensive care unit even, but apparently he had some bad uh, response to a medication and he's apparently all good now and going to be ready for training camps. He'll be fine, but you know how it goes sometimes when players get a concussion. So, Steve, this has been amazing. I feel like any player we throw at you, you've got an analysis for. But, uh, yeah, we've taken up a lot of your time, so we really appreciate you joining us on the show. And before we let you go, though, like you keep on talking about these extra projections that you've been working on. When and where are people going to be able to get access to those? So, yeah, I haven't, uh, I haven't really come up with a plan on, uh, on how I'm going to do that, if I'm going to monetize it, or if it's just going to be something that I kind of uh, unveil in a series of articles. I'm not really sure what, what kind of demand there is for that sort of thing. I don't, uh, I don't necessarily want to uh, step on Dauber's toes in terms of uh, taking up a share of the marketplace. I would hope that uh, whatever, whatever my projections are, are something of, of a supplement to that. Um, certainly, my projections aren't going to be as extensive as Dauber's because who has the time or the wherewithal for that? I mean, uh, I just got uh, back from a deployment uh, far up north, uh, you know, into the middle of the bush where, you know, I was out of service, out of everything uh, for, for two weeks. And um, so just getting back now and I was kind of chomping at the bit and I started diving into working on these projections. Um, I'm back into work tomorrow. So, I mean, I could be off uh, to the middle of nowhere for, for another two weeks at a time and, and not get these projections done until September. So uh, a timeline on when they'll be released, I'm hoping at, by the time training camps open, but uh, no promises on that. But uh, uh, my plan is is to have them released at some point, and certainly there will be a, a big push on Twitter. And um, if I can get them out in the in the Dauber ramblings and and everything else, um, I'll be doing that whenever they're done. Okay, farewell. If I could have a vote as someone who purchased the Dauber guide, and I get to obviously download all the updates as they come, if you wanted to throw it up there with those updates that I can get for the Dauber guide and just get an additional Steve Laidlaw projections to go along with my Dauber projections, I definitely wouldn't mind. I love personally, when I prepare for my drafts, I like to get as many projections as possible so I can get a lot of different points of view. But I guess everyone who's listening, you said it might come out on Twitter. So definitely everyone follow Steve on Twitter at Steve Laidlaw. And you could just check out the daily ramblings like you mentioned at Dauber Hockey. And you could get the Dauber Guide and get your list of stock drop players. So you definitely have access to a lot more Steve Laidlaw if you want it. But thanks so much again for joining us on the show. We definitely hope to get you back again later in the season. We got to check out how you did with your projections. Yeah, absolutely, guys. I uh, I appreciate the uh, the opportunity to come on, chat with you guys. It was a uh, it was a heck of a lot of fun, and uh, yeah, hopefully we'll do it again. And absolutely, uh, people uh, pick up that Dauber guide. It's it's the best in the business. I'm both a a, a contributor and a a supporter of that, um, a customer, if you will. So it, it's fantastic. Yeah, it's it's the premier product in the business. Uh, that's why I'm on here to chat about it. So definitely pick that up. Cool. Well, thanks again. All right, so obviously it's going to be tough to follow up talking about all these big stars like Pasternak and Nylander and and Granlund, and now we're going to move into equally impactful guys in the NHL. Brian, I want to talk to you about Mark Strait being signed by the Montreal Canadiens while you were on your vacation. I think it's worth bringing up on the show, and I see you prepared for it. So basically, Montreal had some changes 
to their defense, right? They had Markov announce he's not re-signing, which was surprising, actually. And apparently there was a whole controversy, like Montreal didn't want to sign. Like Markov said he would have been willing to sign if they could have worked it out. It seemed like they needed that number two defenseman, like offensive guy, but Markov's gone. Bolio was gone a long time ago. They signed Carl Alsner and Schlemko partway through the summer. And then recently they brought in Mark Strait. So I'm curious to know who you think now is the number two guy on Montreal in terms of offensive defenseman behind Shea Weber. Like they were usually running two defensemen on their top power play. Markov's gone. Could it possibly be Mark Strait or is that crazy? It's not crazy. It should be crazy. Like if you're an NHL team and Mark Strait at this point in his career is your second best offensive weapon for the power play, I think there might be a deficiency somewhere in your lineup. Now, there were times last year where, Elon, you asked me, could Jeff Petrie be the newly relevant fantasy guy and, and put in 30, 35 points? That could happen, too, or in stretches. You asked me about Bolu too many times than I cared for, uh, than I cared to be asked. It really is fun, though, to have Mark Strait in this position and in Montreal. I remember back in the day when Montreal had him and Ron Hainsey and like they couldn't keep both and they had to decide between them. And they both ended up getting shipped out within a couple of years, if not at the same time. I can't completely remember. And both seem to be right on the precipice of something big. And of course, we know Strite went to Long Island and was fantastic there. Run Hainsey, I think his next team, was it Atlanta or Columbus? Anyway, nobody cares about this history of Ron Hainsey and Mark Strite. Uh, but going back to Strite's recent history, uh, he had a huge downgrade in role last year in Philadelphia, which we saw coming because of Ghost Bears emergence and Provorov entering the lineup. He lost, straight lost three to four minutes of ice time on average per game compared to recent years and a sizable chunk of his power play role as well. But the bright side of that is he actually managed to hold his points per 60 steady with what it had been for the last few years he was on pace for 32 points in an 82 game season with decreased opportunities to score that's for someone like he's 39 years old that's actually okay that's about what you should be able to ask for from Mark Streit if he's asked to step into Markov's role uh, there's certainly some upside there for his fantasy value now would the Habs be smart to ask him to step right into Markov's role Uh, maybe not but in the same breath I'll remind everyone the way we started this segment on straight is by mentioning that he could be Montreal's second best offensive option on the power play. So if you're in a deep league, I would love to see him continue with a 30-point pace for another year. That might be optimistic. But if you had Andre Markov still capable of like 50 or 55 points, then there's... Well, wait, wait, no one had that. I don't know. I think I think right to the end, there was still a belief, especially with significant power play time and role that Markov could still, like, look at his recent numbers, Elon. He wasn't that far removed from being, what, a 60-point guy? A 60-point defenseman, Andre Markov? Are you crazy? He had 36 points last year and 44 the year before. Okay, so yeah, sorry. He was that far removed. And now I'm actually trying to bring up his numbers. And uh, because I guess he's gone to the KHL, I'm only getting the page on my on my custom Google search on Roto World for Danny Markov, who signed with the KHL long ago. I don't know why I can't get... Anyway, that's uh, that, that's another 
I'll we'll, fig- we'll figure this all out for the season starting. I, you just messaged me earlier about how freaked out you were that hockey reference is gone. You missed a lot while you were on your vacation. Oh my gosh, my my panic and fear and like continued panic. I, I'm I'm a little I'm pretty lost all of okay. a sudden without hockey analysis. I was gonna properly mourn it at the end of the show, but now's as good a time as any. Corsica can't come back soon enough, but I I do have to give props. Hockey analysis was uh, a fantastic fantastic resource and i feel like it's dumb that it was taken down like there's no way i feel like okay no i i don't really have any real insight to give into this i i just think i guess calgary hired the guy i can't see one of the conditions being to take down a site that's been available for 12 years and was one of like the 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 first ones to be out there to provide some with or without you stats and and so many great metrics in one place uh, it's a real shame to see it go, though, and hopefully another one pops up sooner. Maybe the NHL will get its act together somehow, so it doesn't have to be fan projects who set up these sites to track stats. The NHL, of course, has made their attempt, but it's so bonkers and bananas that you cannot rely on it for anything valid statistically. So, uh, yeah, hats off to Hockey Analysis. Congratulations to David Johnson for his new job but I am sort of mad at him for taking down a set. I feel like he was just doing, he's like, oh, I got hired, better take down the site because that's what everyone did before me. Except I feel like it was a different circumstance here. I, he could have yeah, left it up. You Obviously you want that. I'm sure all the other teams competing with the Calgary Flames that maybe use this resource also want it up. Maybe Calgary would like to have access to it just for themselves. But anyway, okay. By the way, in the chat- Wait, hang on. Before, before you move on too far- uh, I, I did find Andre Markov's numbers. Yeah, 50 <laughs> points three years ago. When we were, he had a, a strong start to last season, if I remember correctly, Elon. I don't know if you can verify this while I'm speaking, but uh, oh, yeah, there was. And then he got injured. Yeah, and then he got injured, and then he never really was able to 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 get going that hard again. But we, when we were talking about him earlier on in the season and how he was having such a great year, uh, we thought that maybe he could still reach that 50 point heights that he did at that point. It was just two seasons ago. Anyway, so long Andre Markov an NHL team definitely could have used him, but I guess he decided he could have used the money, which is fair. Why not? I mean, he, he can only get paid this amount of money for another like one or two years of his life, right? He's, 30 he's gonna be 39 years old well but the thing is according anyways we don't want to get too into the gossip but the thing is apparently he wanted to resign with the Habs and they didn't sign him so you know but whatever uh Brian <laughs> I think though you kind of went very quickly over the guy that I think is actually the one that you'd want as the number two defenseman I brought up Mark Strait like mostly expecting you to be like no come on he got benched in the playoffs last year by Pittsburgh he's not going to become a top fantasy option on Montreal behind Shea Weber I think Jeff Petrie is the one you want. He had 28 points last year, which is pretty okay for a defenseman in its own right, especially if you're in a bangers and mash league because he's giving you the hits and blocks. Plus, he did get almost 40% of Montreal's power play time last year. Like He was on the second power play with Markov gone. It seems to me like Jeff Petrie could very well get on the top power play. And I'm talking as someone who doesn't know anything about Jeff Petrie. I'm just looking at numbers here. <laughs> Yeah, well, I'm, I'm I'm as a potential like 35 point guy, like a good sleeper near the end of your fantasy draft, and maybe even a guy you take not in the last round, maybe a little higher if your league counts hits and blocks. I'm going to counter that by saying that Jeff Petrie got that much power play time and only had 28 points on the season. So honestly, I I think Mark Strike could do just as well 
Jeff Petrie is not someone who is built for power play production. That's not his game. Uh, yeah, sure. He can step in the same way. Uh, I don't know. I was going to say like Dion Phaneuf or Matt Niskanen, but those guys might even be a little better than Jeff Petrie in that role. So I, I, I don't see why not try Mark Stride out there. Yeah, I mean, I hear what you're saying. I would be very happy to bet board with you, Mark Strait versus Jeff Petrie for points next year. I think Jeff Petrie's going to win it in a landslide. I think Mark Strait's going to get benched for a bunch of games, just like he was starting to get benched. Like, I remember with... Not a very bold prediction. Like, he was with Pittsburgh through the playoffs, and he was used as, like, a rotating extra defenseman. I don't know if he can play a full season, if he's there for depth or not. But when your next best option is Jeff Petrie, I feel like you've got to try. Maybe. Brian, this reminds me a lot of when Alex Semin went to Montreal and you thought, <laughs> oh, it's good. Trust me, guys, it's resurgence time. And then he was off the team halfway no, through the year. No, this is nothing like, don't, don't even try to equate this. This is totally different. This is me hoping Mark Strait can get on a 30-point pace next year with some power play help. Okay. <laughs> I'm glad to have you back, Brian. I feel like I can't talk like this with the other guests that I've had on the show. Okay. One more big piece of news before we get to our big announcement, which I hopefully have hyped up sufficiently and you guys are also raring to hear. Uh, Travis Zajac is going to be out four to six months. I feel like if this news had happened last year, going into the season, we wouldn't even talk about it on the show. That, like, whatever. Most people weren't going to draft Travis Zajac. But first of all, this is a guy who actually had a pretty fantasy-relevant season last year. There were many stretches throughout where he was on a lot of rosters and doing really well. And he pretty much solidified himself for a lot of the season as the top line, top power play center on New Jersey. So he's out. So I guess people who were thinking of drafting him, now maybe you don't need to, or maybe you grab him near the end of your draft and stash him in your IR if you can, because he's someone who we have seen can provide some fantasy impact once he's back. But with him out, this really makes things interesting because who's going to be New Jersey's top center playing with Taylor Hall, playing on the top power play? Does this open the door for Nico Heeshear to just jump in and be a top line center in his first year? A lot of people have said maybe he's only going to be like a 40-point guy, Peter Harling included, as he said on last week's show, at least for next season. But now with Zajac out, I feel like there's definitely an opportunity here. Or do you think it's going to be someone else, like a more familiar face? Like maybe Adam Henrique, who, if you recall, going into last season, again, when New Jersey got Taylor Hall, we were all like, oh my God, now's the time to draft Adam Henrique because he's going to be the guy playing with Taylor Hall. And that totally flamed out. It was trapped. Zajac, is it going to be Henrique? Is it going to be Hishir? How do you see this going in New Jersey, at least while Zajac is out? Oh well, yeah, it could be Hishir. It could be Pavel Zaka that gets a spot because of Zajac's absence. But the big picture is that the Devils are without one of their most solid and reliable players. And taking that piece out of the top six destabilizes it just as much as it offers an opportunity for someone who might not have had one otherwise. So on one hand, you can say, well, someone can step into a, a bigger role with more ice time. Uh, the, the flip side is that, well, there's not really so much around them to, to work with, with Zajac out. He's really an anchor, a rock for that top six. So you can look at any of the guys and say they might get a little more opportunity, whether or not it really gives them a bump in projection. Uh, I'm not sure it does unless they totally wow us. Like unless Heeshear is way more prepared than we've given him credit for or Zaka, same thing. Otherwise, yeah, I'm not about to get too excited. In fact, I'm getting a little less excited about the Devils' top six because of Zajac's absence. It's like you got to hope Henrique plays with Hall and whoever the third piece is there. And then the rest you might just want to forget about for now. 
And there's also Marcus Johansson, like whoever gets to play with him. That's good news too. Like there are three good guys in the New Jersey Devils top six instead of four now is what I'm getting at. So there, there's less there's less to work with. Wait, so the three good guys are Hall, Johansson, and Heesher? What about Palmieri? Oh yeah, and Palmieri. So there's four good guys. Yeah, so maybe and I'm not, not giving the Devils enough credit. I'm a little rusty still. I and guess. you're not counting Heesher as one of the good guys? No, I'm not counting Heesher as one of the good guys. Oh, man. Like, no, he might be good, but is he ready to produce more than, like, 40, 45 points? I'm not so sure. Yeah, no, that's right. That's what most people are saying as well. Okay, one last huge piece of news before we get to our announcement, and we'll close out the show. Uh, The Sens signed Johnny Oduya, which is, like, totally not fantasy relevant in most formats. The one format where I think this is something you need to take note of is if your league counts hits, I feel like Mark Borowiecki is someone who you have to draft in that type of league because he just dominated hits so much last year. Like he could win you your category. You didn't even need to worry about drafting other hits guys. If you had Borowiecki on your team, it felt like. So now I feel like the Sens, you know, it's not as if Borowiecki was playing in the role that we expect Oduya to play. And like, I expect Oduya to be, you know, the guy mate potentially playing with Eric Carlson, like taking that Mark Mathot spot. But the Sens already, we are expecting someone like Thomas Shabbat to finally come in. And I would have thought that maybe Borowiecki could still, you know, have a spot on defense somewhere but now if you're gonna have shabbat and oduya come in and then also you have like clayson and you know there's a few guys i just don't know if there's room for borowiecki so i'd be nervous about drafting him in my hits league because i don't know if he's going to be playing as regularly as he did last year but maybe i'm wrong well you look at the Sens playoff run and you see what they were able to do without him in a lineup he got injured somewhere near the start and then was like oh we're gonna miss his grit and sandpaper and then of course, they they tried to make up for it with Chris Neal. Anyway, they did fine. They did fine. So I could see that as a reason. And if you ask anyone in the Sens organization, I'll tell you how important he was to the team and how much better everybody felt when he was on the ice with them or on the bench. And there might be something to it, but it also showed that the team could succeed and survive without him on the ice hitting players left and right. And he's actually going to be in a bit of a battle. Like it's not going to be even before Oduo was brought into the picture. So on the right side of Nottawa, you have Carlson, CeCe, and Weidman. That's essentially locked in. Then on the left side, you have Freddie Kleisen, Dion Phaneuf, Johnny Oduya, Mark Borowiecki. That's four guys already. And you have Thomas Shabbat coming up, as, as you mentioned, Elon, and Ben Harpour, who's had some NHL experience as well, got, got into a few playoff games. So there are six guys on the left side for three spots. And, and in my mind, I think Phaneuf, Kleisen, and Oduya pretty much speak for those spots. And I'm guessing that Oduya and Kleisen, if Kleisen can't impress right away in the season, they'll be cycling out for a guy like Mark Borowiecki every so often. But yeah, I definitely take your point, Elon, that he's not necessarily as dependable to get into the lineup as regularly as he did last season. Okay, and with that, Brian, does this mark the end of the 2017 summer series of Keeping Carlson? I think that moving forward, so where we had this episode, we had our great interview. Hopefully you've gone back and listened to all of the summer series episodes we've put out over the last few months if you're a new listener. And we've had a lot of fun going bi-weekly. But Brian, we're not going to be on next week. But then starting in September, we're going back to weekly episodes. We're going to be in our preseason series of Keeping Carlson. And we've got a lot of big episodes coming up. 
We've got our yearly episode where we talk about newly elite players and players who have lost elite status. We've got Schmore Goalies Board coming up. We're going to tier every single goalie. We're going to do that episode that we like where we look at the Yahoo rankings and say who's potentially ranked too high and too low, which usually translates into who you can steal in your draft because a lot of people just draft based on those default rankings. We've got a lot of fun shows coming up and we would love your support going into the season as we get into it. And so, Brian, why don't we get to our big announcement? And talk about our new patron tiers that we're going to be offering to our listeners. We've got something new and we think you're going to like it. We sure do, Elon. One of the things that we've been asked for, like, since we started the show was, can you guys do more than once a week? I, like, this stuff happens during the week. We know you'll catch up on the Sunday. But I want more content. I want more Keeping Carlson. And it's been very flattering. But we've always uh, been a little shy to, to go ahead and do it. But we are shy no more uh, with with the overwhelming demand for that extra con. And we've decided, hey, if you want to support the show, then we're happy to support your desire for that extra content. If you pledge $5 or more per month in this upcoming season, you are going to get your Keeping Carlson Ultimate Patron Fantasy League invite. That's already been a thing. You're going to get live and archived access to the monthly patron cast, which is a show designed by and for exclusively the patrons. That's also been a thing for the last few years. But the brand new thing is you are going to get live and access to the archives of an all-new midweek mailbag show where we're going to take some of the most pressing midweek questions, the most pressing questions that maybe that were left unanswered on the Sunday show or popped up on Monday, Tuesday, or Wednesday. We're going to have a mailbag where we spend 20 or 30 minutes rolling through them, getting some answers to some things that you just can't wait until the next episode to find out. Yeah, we're pretty excited about this. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Once a week, we could all get together. It's going to generally be on Thursday nights. We're going to hop in around 7.30. You could join us live just like you did for this show, if you did. And then I'm going to curate the questions all throughout the week and come up with one of the questions I want to throw at Brian and the ones we'll discuss for our mailbag show. So that's one of the new perks you'll be getting if you sign up as a patron of Keeping Carlson. Like you said, Brian, let's not overshadow the fact that Probably the best perk right now is you get to join the Keeping Carlson Ultimate Patron Fantasy League, which we've been trying to push. I'd love to get as many people signed up for it as possible because it will just be great to fill up all of our tiers and have all of the best fantasy players in the world competing against each other to become the ultimate champion, tier one champion. You sign up for this year, you're probably going to get in at tier five. If you win your tier, you're going to jump up to tier three. A year later, if you win that tier, you jump up to tier one. You can be the ultimate champion in like three years. and You're going to have a lot of fun all along the way. So yeah. Back to, we're not salesmen here. We don't know. I'm just trying to tell you the things that we've, Brian and I have been talking about this for a while now. We're excited to get it out. So yeah, we're going to have this new mailbag show as a feature. You might have noticed that we didn't mention access to our patron-only Facebook group, which has always been one of our big perks that we offer to our patrons. That we're actually going to be changing to be a $10 perk now. So if you sign up for $5, you don't get into the Facebook group. But never fear, existing patrons, if you're in the group, you get to stay in the group. So if you're a $5 patron already, you get to be in the group. And in fact, anyone who's a $5 patron of the show before September 15th, which is our cutoff, we're going to let them stay in the Facebook group as well. So it's like a special promotion right now for, I guess, a few weeks. You could sign up as a $5 patron of Keeping Carlson and get, now I feel like it really is an infomercial. And you can get the patron cast, the mailbag show, the cacupful invite, and Facebook group access only for $5 a month. So <laughs> sign up to be a patron of Keeping Carlson at keepingcarlson.com slash patron. And like I said, up to September 15th, that's also, by the way, the couple sign up deadline. So you have to be signed up as a $5 patron if you want guaranteed access to the couple. So why wait? 
Sign up now. Support us for this next upcoming season. Like I said, we're going to be going back to weekly shows starting in the first week of September. All the way through the season, we're going to be bringing you tons of content and even bonus content, like Brian said, with the Mailbag Show for our patrons. We'd love to have you on board. Okay. All that said, Brian, I think we've done enough shilling for today. Yeah, if anybody wants to know more, I mean, there are a couple more. We're not going to get too deep into it, but but we're going to start releasing our episode planning notes and, and script for certain pledgers. And there's also, we're offering private messaging access at, at a certain pledge level too. If you want all the details, uh, keepingcarlson.com slash patron to find out how we will reward you for supporting our humble venture here. But yes, Elon, I think that's done. I think I think we're done the shilling and the sales pitches for this episode. But stay yeah. tuned for the ones in the next couple weeks. <laughs> well, no, we like I said, we have really big shows coming up. So thanks everyone for listening to the show. Thanks so much to Steve Laidlaw for joining and talking about the Dauber Guide. And I guess with that, Brian, why don't we just queue up? Oh no, do you really want to do this, Brian? Like listing a bunch yeah. of names of people? Totally. Ugh. And now Brian's going to do this thing that I'm convinced people don't care about, but he thinks it's worthwhile to do. So go ahead, Brian, and name all the new patrons who we're so happy to have. I'm sure this is going to be very exhilarating content for everyone listening. (laughs) Okay, when you were younger, did your family or anyone you know ever, like, call into the radio station for your birthday? And, like, and, and so, like, the DJ would say, happy birthday, mention your name during the morning birthday segment or like at a at a sports event get your name on the scoreboard did you ever have that experience <laughs> no i don't think so anyways now it's even more boring content being later layered on top <laughs> I'm just, of it's a thrill content. it's a thrill and and you know it's a personal thrill for us to be supported by the likes of rhino david m justin p carl s adam i len k alex h alexander i Blair C, yeah, maybe we should have taken turns. Jeremy G, Gabriel, Luke, Mark H, Chris S, Ryan B, Jacob H, Andrew Z, Alex C, Derek S, Justin E, Pierre Benoit, Evan M, Michael M, Daniel M, LPK, Jesse S, James J, Ryan DR, Dylan B, Bradley J, Tony B, and Bradley S. They've all joined our crew of patrons recently, actually, since I left for vacation. And we're so glad to have them. You should too. Okay. And I'll say your we were done on the air, no matter what, or no matter how intensely Elon insists that I do not do it. <laughs> Brian, with that, let's cue the outro music. And why don't you go ahead and read us the credits for this week's show? All right. Well, uh, we'll start with an in memoriam for hockey analysis. Uh, this show was presented by Dabra Hockey and supported by all of our patrons, including the ones I just mentioned. In case you missed any, here they are again. Okay, no, just joking. Uh, This episode was researched with help from Frozen Pool. I don't know what else I used. Hockey Reference. Own the Puck. I'm lost without Corsica and hockey analysis. I probably peaked at Hockey Viz at some point. I know I checked out Oilers Nation for some dry sidle thoughts and analysis. I think that's it. I hope I have a longer list within a couple weeks because otherwise, uh, yeah, if anybody wants to start a stat site, just let me know. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Great job, as always, Brian. Great to have you back. Really excited to get going with the preseason series starting in a couple of weeks. But until then... Oh, wait, you say this. I'm so used to doing it for you since you've been away. Okay, uh, keep on keeping Carl's sign. Wow, great sign-off. <laughs> Bye, everyone. <laughs>